What a blessing it is, isn't it, to come together this evening, Sunday afternoon, and to have devoted this set-aside time, a time to honor and to exalt the name of God, to magnify His will. Haven't we already been honored and blessed to be able to sing praises to Him and to pray as you and I just did a few moments ago? For the next few moments, as was done in the New Testament, we'll spend a few moments in consideration of the Word of God. And as you can already tell, we're going to cast a spotlight tonight on angels. By the very nature of the title, you probably can already suspect it'll be a series of lessons. And so tonight we're going to begin with series, the series part number one as we reflect on the biblical teaching concerning angels. These open comments, these introductory ones are probably not that surprising. They're merely to give us a means of consideration to begin our studies. Angels continue to be a topic and a subject of intense interest. You probably can already think of a number of television programs, many of which are designed in such a way that angels are significant parts of those programs. Do you remember the television program called Touched by an Angel? Do you remember the program called Highway to Heaven? That's two that came to my mind rather quickly. And no doubt many other movies and other kinds of programs could be listed, all of which bring us to note that Hollywood rather frequently brings to our appreciation stories that involve angels. Our interest tonight is not what Hollywood has to say. Our interest, as you and I would all be quick to highlight, is that famous refrain of Romans 4 verse 3, What saith the Scripture? What does the Bible have to say about angels? As you and I come near the bottom, a whole host of questions could easily be asked. This is only a very few. What are angels? Where did they come from? What do they do? What do they look like? Well, those again are just a sampling of questions. And over this lesson and the one to come, we will see what the Bible has to say in answer to all of them. And as we do that, we'll study a whole host of other things, of course, along the way. I hope that, among other things, we'll each be encouraged by what God has in store in regard to His teaching, even relative to angels. Let's begin, though, with the following set of ideas. I've entitled it Basic Information. In other words, these are truths, these are features that surely we must understand before really we can go beyond that to wrestle with some of the more tough or some of the more challenging aspects of angels. And so it is. First of all, may we be convinced in heart that angels do exist. They are not figments of imagination. They are not, if you please, merely ethereal beings which really are nothing more than those who are at the beck and call of sometimes asserted individuals. Angels really do exist. I would call to your attention these opening passages that, among other things, highlight that truth. In 1 Timothy 3, verse 16, in the closing verse of that chapter, Paul, in writing to that young man, Timothy, who in fact was laboring in the church at Ephesus, he pointed out to him, God is manifest in the flesh. Now, first of all, would we all agree that that did take place? There's not a doubt in our mind anywhere Jesus really did live in the flesh. He tabernacled here, John 1.14, feeling all the difficulties and the anguishes and the temptations that we face. That verse, 1 Timothy 3.16, not only asserts that God was manifest in the flesh, 
justified in the Spirit. Was our Lord justified in the Spirit? John chapters 1 and 3 testify that He was. So again, we have no question to that. And then the third point Paul makes, He was seen of angels. If we have no question about the reality of the first two, should we have any question about the reality of the angels referenced as part number three? And certainly the answer is no. And that verse goes on to say the Lord was preached among the Gentiles. Was that true? Sure it was. In fact, Paul could say in Colossians 1.23 that every creature under heaven had heard the precious gospel preached. I suppose it's fair to say that angels really are real. There's even a stronger argument than that in Hebrews 1, verses 5 and 6. There, as the Savior was under discussion, the Hebrew writer points out that Jesus is greater than the angels. He's superior to them. And the argument that he uses is this. Quoting from Psalm, he said, Never was there a time when God said to the angels, Thou art this day my son, this day have I begotten thee. Would you think about the logic of that argument? If angels really didn't exist, then that's no argument at all. And yet the Holy Spirit included that as an argument for the reality of angels as well as the superiority of Jesus to them. Angels do exist. With that said, note the next one. Almost 300 times in the, in the Bible, angels are referenced in one way or another. Almost 300 times. Doesn't that highlight what a tremendous part they played in the revelation of God and the Word? One next thing might be this. Although there are some today who don't believe in them, they are by no means the first. The Sadducees didn't believe in them either. In Acts 23 verse 8, for example, Paul on that occasion pointed out rather readily that these Sadducees, they didn't believe in the resurrection, they didn't believe in spirits, and they didn't believe in angels. So there was a group of people, though religious they were, they didn't believe in angels. Again, might we say they have some kinfolk living today, don't they? Those who still do not believe in angels. But beyond that, could we note this? Where did the angels come from? If in fact they do exist, and we've asserted that they do, where did they come from? Two different passages seemingly close the lid on that discussion completely. Would you read with me from Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 and 17? In the opening declaration of the Colossian letter, Paul, in fact, makes such a dramatic statement. I'd like you to appreciate with me the thoroughness of it. Colossians 1, beginning in verse 16. For by Him, and that Him refers to Christ, for by Him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth. Now think about the expansiveness of this. Everything in heaven, everything in earth that exists was created by Him. Surely those angels then as part of those entities, those beings living in heaven, they would be included in such a statement. But he goes on to say this, Visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by Him and for Him, and He is before all things, and by Him all things consist. That's a dramatic statement, isn't it? So expansive. Everything on earth as well as in heaven. At that point, why don't we reflect on Psalm 148. The 148th Psalm, the inspired writer, 
on that occasion, again, references angels and how they began. I'd like you to notice the way he words it. The first six verses of that chapter really are involved in the discussion. I'm simply going to use a couple of the verses. It begins in verse 1 by saying, Praise ye the Lord. Praise ye the Lord from the heavens. Praise Him in the heights. Praise ye Him, all His angels. Praise ye Him, all His hosts. And so far, reference has then been made insisting that the angels even offer praise and homage and obeisance to God. But then it says this in verse number 5 and 6. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for He commanded, and they were created. Angels were created. You'll notice then they are not eternal like God is. They're not eternal like the Holy Spirit or like God the Son. They were created. I've merely made that statement, as you can see, then on that same slide. Thus, we must never think that angels are eternal. We must never think that they have always been because there came a time when God brought them into existence. We might then, in addition, ask this question, so how many angels are there? Well, you'll notice on the slide, we do have some biblical references to assist us in answering that question. In Hebrews chapter 12, for example, verse 22, reference is made to the fact that there is an innumerable company of angels. An innumerable company? The Greek word literally means a very large host. It would seem to me the Revelation writer John adds to that the following idea. In Revelation 5 verse 11, "...inasmuch as the residents, if you please, or those who exist in heaven are mentioned," the, Hebrew, the Revelation writer pointed out, "...that ten thousands of ten thousands and thousands of thousands are their number." At the very least, you and I can say that these angels number an exceedingly large host. In fact, the Revelation writer again points out, we know Revelation isn't meant to be taken literally on so many occasions, and yet there, 10,000 times, times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, surely it leads us at least to be able to see this. In Second Chronicles 18, 18, as a panoramic picture is given about God addressing the host of heaven, it does say it was a host. There aren't just a few of them. The Bible doesn't point out an explicit number, but it does say it's an exceedingly large number. As you and I think then about these angels so far, perhaps it brings us to the bottom of this slide. Isn't it fascinating to contemplate that there is a hierarchy of them? In other words, there are stations among the angels. Some of them are greater than others. Some of them, you see, reside in appreciations whereby they might be called an archangel. I bring that to our attention because in Jude verse number 9, Michael is given a name, one of the angels, but he's not just an angel. It is said that Michael is the archangel. And in the Greek, that word literally means the chief angel. And thus again, might we note there is a station or hierarchy. Some of them are higher than others. Perhaps their obligations, their responsibilities. That particular hierarchy leads us to appreciate also the following. Three verses earlier, 
the inspired writer points out to you and me that there is an estate. And some of the angels were not happy in their estate. In other words, there was a particular realm, a responsibility, a consideration that they had, and they weren't happy with it, and they chose to leave their first habitation. I suppose in some way that's unfathomable to you and me. These angels in the very presence of God, honored to be able to be with Him all the time, and yet some of them were unhappy with their estate. They were dissatisfied. The rebellion that resulted will in fact be a part of our discussion here again in just a few moments. So far we've learned about these things concerning angels, but some basic information also brings us to this next slide. You'll notice that these angels, in the sense that they rebelled against God, they were possessed with the capability of free will. In other words, though they did reside in heaven, God didn't force them to, to obey Him. He didn't force them, in fact, to be as robotic as those who had no choice. But rather, they had the capability of committing sin. I say that because that is significant, very significant. This, note this development. In 2 Peter 2, verse number 4, the angels that sinned were cast down and are reserved in chains under everlasting judgment. Notice it says angels sinned. And sin is a transgression of the law of God, 1 John 3, 4. And therefore some angels, some number of them, chose to rebel and they chose to disobey. Isn't it fascinating that Peter uses that idea to help encourage all of us? He says, look at what happened to the angels, and so don't you ever disobey. Don't you ever, in fact, fail to honor and appreciate and respect God, for look what happened to the angels that did it. Isn't that a reminder of what the station is going to be at judgment? Maybe it's fair to say, in addition to that, that isn't the only place in the Bible that that kind of behavior is described. In the Old Testament, in Job 4, verse 18, their reference was made, God charged some of His angels with folly. In other words, He was dissatisfied with what they did, the choices they made. He charged them, He labeled them with folly. And of course, that famous and, remember, and memorable scene in Revelation 12, war in heaven. You and I remember who led that war. Now, God was on the side of good, of course, but remember Michael the archangel was the very one leading the troops of goodness. Who was the one leading the troops in rebellion against God? It was the dragon. It was that old serpent. It was the one, you see, who had been, who had been a sinner from the beginning. You'll notice, though, that text affirms he was cast out. Aren't you thankful that as you and I dream about and ponder the character of heaven and yearn to be there... The being that won't be there is the dragon. Revelation 20 gives us the impression he was cast into a lake burning with fire and brimstone, that old dragon, the devil. We'll never have to worry about him in heaven. No influence from him will ever be there. No characteristic influence of any kind from him will be present. And aren't we thankful for that? We see what a mess he is so often made of earth as individuals have chosen to follow him. It'll not be that way in heaven. Nothing that defiles, Revelation 21, 27. As you and I add to that list, might you and I pause now and notice 
Even the devil has some angels. Even the devil has angels. Didn't Jesus say in Matthew 25, 41, there is a place prepared for the devil and his angels. It's this place, of course, of torment and this place of awful anguish. It's prepared for the devil and his angels. Now, as you and I keep in mind, that war in heaven we described earlier, that characteristic behavior of this rebellion against God, it would seem that then the devil was the leader, but there were some who chose to follow him. There were some who chose in absolute folly and in almost unthinkable character of stupidity to follow the devil instead of God. You'll notice that they all are reserved in chains and under judgment. As you and I think then about evil angels, angels that do what's evil, notice what then follows it. Angels do not know everything. Although they are blessed to be in the presence of God, those good angels at least, you notice that they still don't know it all. Might we call to our attention Matthew 24, verse 36. That, of course, is a statement about the nature of the Lord's second coming. And Jesus Himself affirmed even the angels don't know when that's going to be. You and I have often reflected, haven't we, on the fact that the Lord's second coming is something that no man knows as far as when it's going to be. And not even the angels know. At this very moment, might you and I keep in mind, encircling the very throne of God are angels who are anxiously waiting the second coming of Christ, for they too don't know when it's going to be. But they know the grandeur that will be a reward to the saints when that does happen. And they're so anxious to see be the recipients of that glory. To those things might we add this. Angels do not marry. You and I read that more than once in the New Testament. I would call to our attention, Matthew 22, verse 30. The Sadducees ask our Savior a question. Remember, they told the record about a man who ultimately had a brother, but the man died. His wife he left behind was married. Was, uh, uh, the man, his, his brother married that woman, and that continued through seven brothers. And the Sadducees ask, in the resurrection, whose wife will she be? They felt sure they had asked the Lord an unanswerable question. But in rather directness, He said, You do greatly err. You don't understand the Scriptures or the power of God. The angels don't marry. That's a rather blunt statement. You and I realize that the kind of understanding that you and I now have in this flesh, the nature of the need for companionship in that regard, and the blessing that comes in that way, as sweet and as wonderful as it is, Revelation 21 presents that all of those particular needs are offered in a different way. The angels don't marry. And in fact, when you and I enter into that realm, we won't marry either. Might you and I then note these following two statements. Angels are great. No question about it. They're higher than man. Isn't it true? The psalmist made that statement for us in Psalm 8. Verses 4 and 5. What is man that thou art mindful of him? Or the son of man that thou visitest him? Thou hast made him a little lower than the angels. The angels are great. But might you and I be quick to observe this truth. Though they may be great, they are never ever to be worshipped. 
In fact, more than once in the Word of God, that truth is put before us. In Revelation 19.10, for example, it is there abundantly highlighted. John the Revelator was overwhelmed as he thought about and gave consideration to those marvelous visions he had just seen. And he fell down ready to worship the angel. And the angel immediately said, See thou do it not. Worship God. In fact, even the angels direct their worship to God. Isn't it fascinating to close that slide this way? Hebrews 1.6 says they worship the Son. That's S-O-N now, not S-U-N. As they direct their worship to God the Son. We've learned a lot of basic information so far about angels. Hadn't it been rather enthusiastically presented to us in the Word of God? But what else might we learn about angels? Not only this basic information, but what about their appearance? What do angels look like? Now, I'm sure that all of us have already thought about an angel is supposed to have, it's supposed to be in white, with wings that, that, that flutter. It's supposed to be so graceful in its appearance. Well, surely it's fair to ask, does the Bible present angels that way? Let's notice a few statements about the way that angels appear. First of all, you and I can note rather clearly that those angels that are highlighted as good, that is to say, not the ones that are evil, but they seemingly are always associated with holiness. In Zechariah chapter 1, verses 9 and following, we have a beautiful description about these angels. And as they appeared to Zechariah, they delivered a majestic vision to him, a vision of holiness and a vision of the great message of God to be shared with the people through, through the prophet Zechariah. But to that might we add in Matthew 25, 31, on that great occasion when Jesus is going to come back for the second time, it says he'll be accompanied with angels. Angels are going to be present when our, when our Master returns. They're going to accompany the greatness of that commission and the effort that goes with it. In 1 Timothy 5, 21, these angels again are described on that occasion and one more time in the attribute and avenue of the holiness associated with the things of God. That's just a sampling and we'll look at many other specific cases in just a few moments but might we immediately add this? Think immediately about the number of times that angels were directly affiliated and associated with Jesus. When He was tempted by the devil on those three occasions, turn these stones into bread, cast yourself off the pinnacle of the temple, fall down and worship me. And every time the Lord quoted Scripture to, 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 to that old devil... But after the aftermath of that, the text in Matthew 4.11 says, Angels came and ministered to Him. These angels appeared to Jesus, strengthening Him, encouraging Him. Why don't we add this? In Matthew 28 verse 2, after the Lord was crucified and after He was resurrected on that Sunday morning, we find an angel came and rolled the stone away. One more time, an angel was associated with the great work that was to be carried out and brought forth by Jesus. In Acts chapter 1, verse 10, when the Lord ascended back into heaven, there were two angelic visitors appeared and had conversation with those apostles while they were gazing up into heaven. Why don't we add one more in 2 Thessalonians 1, 7. When our Savior comes back, doesn't it say that He'll do so? 
in flaming fire with His holy angels, taking vengeance on them that know not God and obey not the gospel. You see, the angels then will be a vital part of those who assist and aid in carrying out the great work that's associated with Jesus. As you and I think about that, might we carefully now note then that those angels, as they appeared in various occasions in the Bible, the appearance varied rather notably. Consider this. In Daniel 8 verse 15, an angel appeared to Daniel, but the text is very clear in saying the appearance of the angel was as a man. That angel on that occasion looked like a man. In addition to that, in Genesis 18 1, Two angels appeared to Lot, hastening him and his family to get out of Sodom, and yet we remember they lingered. And you may remember that they again had appearance looking like human beings on that occasion. So much so that in Hebrews 13, 2, there's an interesting passage. Be not forgetful to entertain strangers unawares, for some have entertained angels in that way. A reference again back to the days of Lot. And so, so far as an angel appeared in that way, notice in Isaiah chapter 6, an interesting word appears, the word seraphim. And that's the only time in all the Bible that word appears. And yet, look at the description given. The seraphim had six wings, not two, mind you, but six. And as the seraphim appeared, they were a part of the greatness and the holiness of God in commissioning Isaiah. Isaiah saw these seraphim in light of his presence on that occasion. And that seraphim even, in fact, with a coal touched the lips of Isaiah. What an overwhelming scene. As you and I add to that thought, this notion, though the word doesn't appear, rings in our heart as we think about Ezekiel chapter 1 and Revelation 4, both of which have a strong semblance and similarity to that scene in Isaiah 6. It's amazing, isn't it, to think about these angels so far in their appearance. Why don't we add that to this? In Luke 24, 4, angels appeared with incredibly shining garments. So shining, in fact, that it was glistering in its presentation. These angels that appeared that way, again, so far as a man or in a shining characteristic of garment. No wonder people sometimes reacted to them with fear. May I call to your attention the scene of Judges 13. Samson's parents, first his mother. When that angel appeared to Samson's mother, you may recall that she was overwhelmed in fear, understanding there was something different unique about this angel. She ran to her husband you may remember that angel stayed with them and visited a while and made promise she was going to bear a son. That was ultimately going to be Samson. Not only did she react with fear, think about Luke 2 verse 9. On the occasion when the proclamation was given, remember Joseph and Mary, they had made their way to Bethlehem and she was with child. Angels appeared and said, don't be afraid because those shepherds were greatly afraid when those angels appeared. Why don't we add this one to the list? In Matthew 28, 2, that text we mentioned a moment ago, when the angel appeared and rolled that stone away, the keepers fell over as dead men. They were afraid of what they saw. 
I suppose the least we could say is in a being as powerful as these angels are, it would be enough to strike fear into one's heart. The bottom of that list, angels can fly very rapidly apparently. I say that because Revelation 8 verse 13 highlights that truth. As John saw this tremendous appreciation, and again, John, what you see right in the book, John saw these angels fly incredibly rapidly. And as they did so, that reminds us that they are able to move about, to transport, if you please, exceedingly quickly. As that kind of description is given, notice this as well. So far as we've highlighted a bit about their appearance and some basic information about them, what do they do and how do they do it? That too is a very interesting question. This one likely is going to have to carry over somewhat into the next lesson. We only tonight are going to state some of those things and we'll develop them much more next time. First, let's note with some care the word that appears. That word angel... I mentioned earlier that it occurs almost 300 times in the Bible. Whether it is the Hebrew word that's translated as angel in the Old Testament, or whether it's the Greek word that's translated angel in the New Testament, both words in the original mean the same thing. It means messenger. And so when you and I think about an angel, the most basic appreciation, the most basic understanding is a messenger. Someone with a message, a work, a task or chore that's intended from someone else to give to them to do. It is for that reason. We come to the lesson text that was read in our hearing tonight. In Hebrews chapter 1 verse 14, the finest description of the work of angels that I know of anywhere in the Bible. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 14. At the very end of that chapter, wherein, again, angels are often mentioned, but Jesus, again, is superior to them, this description is given. Verse 14 says, Are they, that word they refers to angels, are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? The remainder of our time tonight will be an exposition of that verse. What are those words saying and what do they mean and how do they touch your life and mine with an appreciation at the basic level of angels? First of all, angels are said to be ministering spirits. The word ministering literally means that which has to do with service. Angels, in other words, are not the grand officials. They're merely carrying out a work that has been given to them. They are called ministering spirits. Not only that, the special service given to them is a service that relates to a very specific matter, usually in holiness. I say that because in Exodus 39.1, that same word that here appears as ministering spirits is used there to describe that special service in the old tabernacle. It was intended, of course, to be directed ultimately and only to God. Angels are ministering spirits. Not only this, note, the text says, sent forth. Now, if one is sent forth, someone had to send them. You and I know, of course, that's God. 
these angels are the emissaries. They're the servants of God in the sense that they carry out His bidding and His will and His work. In addition, might we notice, and I find it interesting that the Greek word that appears here, this word that means sent forth, that word is apostolo. We all can see the other New Testament word that comes right out of that. When we think about those 12 apostles, that word apostle literally means one who is sent. Well, here these angels are sent from God. They're ministering spirits of His. Might we add this? Who is it they're sent to? The text again reads it like this. Are they not all ministering spirits? sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation. As we develop that next Sunday night, you can already begin to ponder, so what ways are these angels ministering to those who are heirs of salvation? You and I fully anticipate that's us. We're the ones who've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. We're the ones whose names are in the book of life. We're the ones who are excitedly and eagerly looking forward to heaven. And yet the angels is, are said to be those who minister for those who are heirs of salvation. How do they do this? What do they do? You'll have to wait till next Sunday night for us to finish that. But isn't it already a wonderful thing to imagine? God has seen fit among the legions of those who are His servants in heaven to make a special commission to them that they be servants to those who are His people. That's a fine, fine thought, isn't it? Isn't it a wonderful thought that God wants to see to our needs, see to the particulars of our life in such a way that these particular creatures of His minister for us. No wonder as you and I come to the bottom of that slide... There's a lot of things different from what the Bible says about angels to what Hollywood has said. May we not allow Hollywood to, to dictate and determine our view of angels. May we not allow Hollywood to set in our heart the feature of what these angels are and what they do. We'll have to find out as we study the Word of God just how grand is the topic of angels. Perhaps one last thought on that slide. These angels, ministering spirits, sent forth to minister. Now, as you think about the word minister, I know we often think about a preacher. But keep in mind that Greek word is much more broad than that. It literally means to do service. Angels doing service. You and I look forward someday to being in heaven where we too can sing the song of Moses and the Lamb, Revelation 15, 2 where you and I too can be in a position to serve our Heavenly Father. Revelation twenty two fourteen still says, Blessed are they that do His commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. And the portrait and picture given to us is the endless and ceaseless service to our Heavenly Father. Tonight we have studied about angels. This conclusion slide then will be this one. I trust our study has been a profitable one as we have basically learned a few things. Basic information. Helping us to understand the basic understanding and fundamental features of angels. 
But with that, some specifics. They've brought us to understand their appearance. Sometimes as a man, but other times something different. And sometimes, of course, their work finally described as those who are sent forth to minister to those who are heirs of salvation. If you're not an heir of salvation, you could already imagine you haven't responded very well to the work of angels. As we develop that next Sunday night, I trust it's going to be a very fruitful thing to just imagine what all angels have done and will do for those who are the faithful. Tonight, if there's anyone in this audience who isn't right with the Lord, who at this point realize there is a chasm, a very wide Grand Canyon of sin separating you from God. You need to do something about that. God has taken care of everything on His side, if you please, of the fence. The decision's now yours. Don't you want to rush to His side in eagerness and in faith, wanting all sins to be forgiven so that you could be sanctified, justified, whole, and pure? You realize the Bible reveals how that happens. If you have never become a Christian, believe with all of your heart that Jesus is the Son of God. Repent of your sins, confess His name, and then allow yourself to be immersed in water for the remission of sins. If you've become a Christian, but maybe you have forsaken the nature of the things of truth, you've begun to live in a way that's been rather shameful and disgraceful, and maybe in that sense you have forgotten wholly about the work of angels and you again want angels to work on your behalf. We'd be delighted to pray to God tonight on your behalf, recognizing that as you repent of those sins and confess them, God has promised to forgive. But again, the decision is yours and mine. If you would be in a position in life where that would be your need, don't delay, don't procrastinate. Today is the day of salvation, 2 Corinthians 6 verse 2. Tonight, if we could be of help in either of these ways, we want to help. And we want you to let us know how we can. And to do it now, while together we stand and while we sing.